CPS, they're rolling back mitigations and telling parents that if you don't bring your kid to the school, they'll lose their space at a selective enrollment school or at the magnet that they attend. It is inhumane. It lacks integrity and compassion. I am struggling. For goodness sakes, political parties was just taken out of the civic standards in middle school. Political parties. How can students learn civics without learning about the political party structure? They can't. Museums really rely heavily on this precarious labor that they pay very poorly. People looked around and said, this is not right. And unionization is the way to close the gap. They don't have a neonatal unit. They don't have proper OBGYN coverage. They don't have anesthesiologists. I get all that. But my point with them was, why didn't you put the money into our hospital to make sure that happened? They can look at kind of computer programmers, for example. That used to be considered a sort of clerical female job. But then IT became a sort of blokey profession, and then suddenly <laughs> there were lots of men making lots of money in that profession. So how many how many paintballs did you take? Unfortunately, nobody got me. Like, my money is going directly to Amazon. Personally, I would like to see that money invested into the actual communities and things like public transit and better health care, because I think that would improve Virginia a lot more than HQ2, but... It's just, it doesn't end. The non-union man automatically benefits from whatever the laboring man fought and struck for to achieve a bottom line of reward. The more labor can be defeated, the more you can advance on the other fronts. We would get on the call every day and they just went like, what is going on there? What is happening? How do we talk about it? And I think they were helping me process what was happening here. Happy Labor Day weekend, everyone. And what better way to kick off the holiday weekend than by listening to the newest Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. We are proud to announce that the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly reached over 130 shows this week. And today we're excited to share nine of those podcasts. If you want to check out the remaining 120 or so, by all means, visit laborradionetwork.org and check out our new member page where you can search by name, topic, and even location. Without further ado, here's our lineup. School is back in session, and most importantly, in person. Andrea and Jim from CTU Speaks interview the Chicago Teachers Union President Jesse Sharkey and Vice President Stacey Davis-Gates on how they're feeling about the return of students to school as both CTU union members and CPS, that is Chicago Public Schools, parents. From the Florida Education Association comes Educating from the Heart. We hear from Elizabeth Rasmussen, a high school history teacher of 14 years. She touches on how the pandemic and political climate has changed the way she thinks about teaching and her own pedagogy. In union news, on America's Workforce Radio, UAW Local 2110, President Maida Rosenstein talks about her work with unionizing museums and other cultural institutions in New York City within the context of the pandemic. Another exemplary union leader from the latest AFT in action is Leah Rawls. Currently, she serves as the president of the Winham NAACP, but in this interview, Leah recounts her efforts to organize her community against the closure of the Hartford's Healthcare's Maternity Ward last year. Showcasing one of our newer shows is On the Job All the Way from Australia. 
On this episode, hosts Francis and Sally with journalist Christine Speaker examine the phenomenon of when a job that has historically been worked by women shifts to be more male-dominated, the pay tends to go up, and vice versa. Welcome guys from Down Under, and we're excited to hear about your show. We will then take a quick break to hear a short promo on the Grit Northwest paintball battle lineup. Next, we'll move on to Labor Express Radio, where Flash converses with another Labor Radio Podcast Network host, Avery Bernard from the Amazon. They touch briefly on Avery's experience with Amazon and how to handle its influence on the labor movement in the future. From the archives of the Heartland Labor Forum is an interview from the actor Ed Asner, who is most noted for his role as Lou Grant on the Mary Tyler Moore Show. This week, he sadly passed away, but in this archived episode from 2013, he talks to Judy about the real reason why the show got canceled and his connection to the labor movement in the United States and Latin America. Finally, director Tom McCarthy is featured on the director's cut. His new film, Still Water, stars Matt Damon as an oil rigger from Oklahoma who travels to Marseille to help exonerate his daughter who is accused of killing her roommate. On the podcast, McCarthy discusses how he tried to authentically capture a working class experience in the movie. This is Mel Smith with the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, and here's our show. Welcome to this episode of CTU Speaks, Back to School, Back to Safety. I'm your co-host, Jim Staros, and I'm joined with... The better co-host, Andrea Parker. Mm-hmm. How are you so sure you're the better co-host, Ms. Parker? Let's do a poll. I'm sure we'll get 100% in my favor. Because you'll be the only one voting? Mm, no, nah, not at all. Womp womp. Anyway, so we're here ready for the next school year coming up and we're are we ready i don't know are you ready in terms of safety i'm not sure we're still the bargaining table we are still at the bargaining table and since we're gearing up for this fight for safety in our schools we thought it would be a really good idea to have some great guests to uh discuss that we know it is our president of the chicago teachers union Jesse Sharkey, joined with Vice President of the Chicago Teachers Union, Stacey Davis-Gates. And what better experts on bargaining, on safety than those two? Exactly. So we know that both um, you, Jesse, and Stacey are parents of CPS students. So how are you feeling about the return to school and the CPS plan for it in reference to them? Oh, Lord. You know, it's intimidating. And I'll say that because we, we, he's vaccinated, but, but most, you know, students, uh, most student age uh, children in the city of Chicago aren't. And you've got vaccination rates among 12 to 17 year olds that black students, just this information is a few weeks old, but it was at 12%. In, in parents' communities, we've got a whole number of communities. I think the six low zip codes are averaging around 30% vaccinated. Yeah, no, I'm extremely worried. Not only are we worried for our own safety, I'm worried for his. And then certainly about what happens if there's an outbreak in the school and that winds up sickening people. And it's just the fact that we don't, for example, uh, have details about how testing is going to work. And CBS is saying, well, we're going to run a testing program. And they don't even have the consent forms available. They're saying, we're going to get those out to you. I think it's quite likely that this testing program is, is not up and running uh, when school starts next week. Who knows when it's going to be up and running? 
And so, yeah, if we're not worried about this on a personal level, uh, we're not paying attention. Yeah, I'm struggling. My children are like everyone else's children. They want to be back in their social space with their friends. They want some normalcy. What I fear, quite frankly, is that upon their return to school, it won't be what they remember and love because of all of the mitigations that I'm praying that Jesus will be employed because my two girls are not vaccinated. My son is. Sometimes I wish I was a regular parent and that I did not know everything that I do know about the administration of our school district. The only thing that I got to get right in this life is protecting them, making sure that they have what they need, some of what they want, and that they have the advantages of a stable household. I'm questioning how I do that in this moment. It's not easy. I don't think that parents are regarded in the Chicago public schools in a real way. I think that parents like me who live on the south side of Chicago are afterthoughts to our school district and to our mayor. I think we're putting too much on kids to be responsible for their safety in the middle of a pandemic. And I don't have any choice. And the school district has been inflexible. This is when a mayor running a school district, to be honest with you, is problematic because the decisions of a mayor, a political actor, emanate from polling. They don't emanate necessarily from common good. And so here we are at the precipice of reopening schools. And we see even in spaces that are putting the layers of mitigation into place that there are still gaps. And CPS, they're rolling back mitigations and telling parents that if you don't bring your kid to the school, they'll lose their space at a selective enrollment school or at the magnet that they attend. It is inhumane, it lacks integrity and compassion. I am struggling. I do a lot of things well and I am failing at getting myself to a place where I am comfortable with my children returning to their school community. And I love our school community. I love the people there. I think that they work well together. Even the things that they disagree on over there, they figure out. I feel like children are a priority in that space. And this is still a pandemic. And the Delta variant could give a damn about how great those people are and how well they work together. And our mayor could give a damn about the type of flexibility and creativity that is necessary to keep people safe in this moment. We are really and truly between a rock and a hard place. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much, listeners, for listening to this episode of CTU Speaks, where we only speak what matters. See you soon. You're listening to Educating from the Heart. Thank you for joining our lively conversations with teachers, support professionals, parents, and students as they share issues that matter most in our public schools. Here are your hosts, Tina Dunbar and Luke Flint.
Welcome back to Educating from the Heart, the Florida Education Association podcast for teachers, support professionals, parents, community leaders, and students. Together, we engage in monthly conversations exploring all aspects of education and the impacts of policy decisions on our students and their schools. I'm Tina Dunbar, and with me is my co-host, Luke Flint. Hey, Luke. Hey, Tina. Good to see you again. You too. (laughs) We open season two with a high school history teacher from Polk County who has been in the classroom for 14 years and seen a lot of change during that time. Elizabeth Rasmussen shared her hopes for her students as well as her fears for what this school year could bring. I've always had a passion for history. I actually was homeschooled, so I have an interesting path coming to be a public educator, but I would just grab a history book and hide in the closet and read. I just always thought it was cool, the stories in the past. And I remember I was 16 and I was thinking about what I wanted to do. First, I want to be a meteorologist. And then I realized that involves a lot of uh, math and science. And so it was out for me because those were my strong suits. But then I realized, I remember I was looking through a college catalog that my mom had just to give me an idea of jobs. And I realized, wait, I could be a teacher and I can just teach history the whole time. I love working with kids, teach history. And so at 16, I knew that's what I wanted to do. So I started at 20 years old, I was, I was teaching. In, in 14 years mm-hmm. as a history teacher, you've seen the election of the first black president. You've seen an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol and a whole bunch of things in between. And I wonder, there are perhaps some flashpoints right now that not every generation goes through. What's it like to be a history teacher now? It's definitely living history. And that's something I've pressed upon my students to try to remember. We've even done journals, what they're going through. Did that last year when we were all virtual because of COVID? Oh, yeah. And it brings up, I didn't want to dwell too much on COVID, but I also can't help but make parallels to the 1918 pandemic with the flu pandemic and what was done then and what wasn't. It's been really interesting. The election, we had this only, not this past election, but we had with the first election in 2016, the one that then President Trump ran in, it was, he won the Electoral College and not the popular vote. Only the fifth time it's ever happened in American history. So there you go, that's history. And I think with the election and the insurrection, insurrection the day after, that's all my kids want to talk about. So we were able to talk about it and spend some good amount of time talking about it and talking about it what it was and why it was before it became politically charged when it was just facts. This is what happened. This is why it happened. My kids were interested in that. So would you have the same conversation with them today or when you return to school and would you have the exact same conversation now? Why? Explain that. Because I feel as, especially as a social studies teacher, there's so much political pressure right now on what to say and what not to say. And I'm talking about really external pressure right now. Haven't been told by a department chair or principal that you can't say something. I'm respected as the authority in my subject area at my school, and I'm very lucky in that. But I know that there's going to be pressure to avoid certain subjects. And like we said, you can't avoid them, but to try to address them as limited as possible. So I think that definitely is going to 
I have to be careful what I say because my certification's at risk if I say one wrong thing or I say something and it's, I won't say that it's wrong. I say something and it's twisted in the wrong way. Mm -hmm. And that's the bigger concern. Yeah. And that, I was in tears about it earlier today because I was talking, we were doing a session and me and my group were just talking about some of the challenges that we're facing this upcoming year. And the anxiety of that really weighs heavy on you as a teacher because you always want what's best for your students. And you always want your students to learn the full picture. And how can your students learn the full picture when you're leaving it out? Doesn't that hurt learning? 100% it hurts learning. I teach my students to be critical thinkers. I've always said this, and now it's been co-opted by other people, but I teach my students to be critical thinkers, not what to think. I don't teach my students what to think. I give them the skills they need to be able to look at things critically. And I, whenever I present anything, I present both sides. If it's a political issue, which history often is, you have to look at both or more, the multiple sides and the multiple issues of something. So. I definitely think this is gonna hurt learning. It's gonna hurt the critical skills that we need to teach our students. They're not gonna be able to evaluate things if they're not allowed to do so in school. How can they evaluate, for goodness sakes, political parties was just taken out of the civic standards in middle school, political parties. And how can students learn civics without learning about the political party structure? They can't. All right, thanks for listening. We'll see you again real soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. As many say, it's all about organizing. Here we are days away from Labor Day, and we have more folks joining unions across America. Bookstore employees, musicians, writers, and today on the show, the UAW organizing museums across America. Let's go to line number one. Welcome a newcomer to the show. Name is Maida Rosenstein, and she is president of UAW Local 2110 out of New York City, and this is a, an office of technical professional employees. UAW has branched out in recent years. It's not just auto workers. They're very diversified. Many unions have done that, and this is one good example. Maida, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So talk to me about your local. This is a UAW Local 2110. We're a UAW local. We don't have any auto workers in our local at all. We're what we call a technical office and professional local, and we represent workers at, in universities. And most recently, we've been doing a tremendous amount of organizing in cultural institutions and museums. It's quite unique. And we're an amalgamated local, meaning multiple different workplaces. And we represent workers at some workplaces like the Museum of Modern Art, Columbia University. We even represent the staff of the ACLU Mm -hmm. in their New York headquarters. 
Maida, I want to talk about museums and the curators. Yes. And I, I noticed, too, that you've been doing really well with that. Can you bring us up to speed and, and give us a little history here? So it's interesting. We Workers at the Museum of Modern Art have, been, have long been organized with our union and have been, over the years, fought for and won some really great contracts. They had big strike in 2000, which they won. And a few years ago, there was a lot of press and publicity about a contract that we had at MoMA, and it spurred quite a bit of interest in the like arts community, of especially younger people. And we were contacted by workers from the New Museum, and they organized, and New Museum fought them bitterly. They literally hired a union avoidance from Kentucky to try to fight this institution. And so it was just astounding to people in that world that the museum was fighting the unionization so hard. And they got tremendous press across the country. And I think these arts institutions, it's quite interesting. Like the universities, they have these very wealthy corporate boards. People in the upper echelons make quite a bit of money. And the and yet the staff makes very little Even professionals in museums, curators, archivists, librarians, make very low salary. And many workers in museums are really have very precarious conditions, front-facing workers who mainly work part-time. Some of them have seasonal layoffs, have no benefits, and barely earn above minimum wage. Art handlers and museum educators who work very intermittently and only get work if they're called in to do something in in particular. And museums really rely heavily on this precarious labor that they pay very poorly. People looked around and said, this is not right, and unionization is the way to close the gap. Maida, I'd like to talk a bit about these anti-union drives. Can you address that for us? People really were horrified at the gap between the mission of these institutions, their purported claims that they were dedicated to justice, art, lofty things, and yet then trying to instigate a no vote. And the context as well. I mean, the museums are in places like New York and Boston that are traditionally more liberal and where, and it's a group of younger people right now in museums. The generation is millennial and they are very pro-union. And so they don't buy into this. And these anti-union campaigns have not worked. And workers are voting in unions by, you know, very large margins. You're an awesome guest. Thank you. I'm going to let you go back to work. I know you're a busy lady, okay? Okay. Thanks very much. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce Radio Podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com. Welcome, sisters and brothers, to another episode of AFT in Action. My name is Jan Hockadell, your State Fed President, and I'm once again co-hosting this latest episode. Today we will be discussing the struggle to restore the maternity services that have been shut down at the Wyndham Community Memorial Hospital, and we'll talk about the engagement and the impact on the community.
Today we are joined by Leah Rawls, who is a former AFT Connecticut member, and she was a social worker in the judicial branch. And it was that work that helped her create community ties with many local advocacy groups like Access Community Action Agency. Leah is now serving her third term as the president of the Wyndham Willimantic NAACP. So welcome, Leah. Thank you. It's good to be here, Jan. Hello, Sherry. It's good to see you. So Leah, let's now talk about the crisis at Wyndham Hospital. Can you share how your NAACP branch got involved with the coalition, working to undo Hartford HealthCare's cruel, cruel cuts? What an atrocity. They have made a decision to eliminate a very necessary medical service in our community without even discussing it with the community, without hearing my voice, without hearing my neighbor's voice, without hearing your voice or your neighbor's voice. And it set me off in a tizzy, and I decided that I was going to have a huge protest in front of the hospital. In doing that, I spoke to my health care committee, of which Brenda Buckbinder, a member of AFT, is on. And, of course, they talked me off the ledge, and we decided to go about it in a little bit more of a diplomatic way. And Brenda designed a petition sheet, and we decided that we would hit the streets during the pandemic, getting signatures and educating people. The next step was we decided to attend protest corner with We the People, because that's a that's an opportunity to bring an issue to the community. And there I ran into Arvin Shaw, who is the CEO of Generations. And just so happens, he was down there to get support for this same issue. And then there was represent, State Representative Susan Johnson. She, of course, was down there to get support for the same issue. So the three of us began to talk, and me, go straight to the source. Call the hospital, let's get a meeting. And we met with the hospital, and it was not a good meeting. It was not a good meeting. And their response to, why didn't you consult the community, was far from acceptable. And I had to let them know that we had decided that we were going to join forces and work towards getting our maternity unit back. One of the many ways your branch showed real leadership was the community forum you helped organize this past winter. What was the motivation behind that key event? The motivation was that meeting because we all walked out of there just blown away. Like, did this just really happen? Don't get me wrong. I understand the medical concerns that they are talking about. They don't have a neonatal unit. They don't have proper OBGYN coverage. They don't have anesthesiologists. I get all that. But my point with them was, why didn't you put the money into our hospital to make sure that happened? Don't tell me you don't have it. Tell me why you didn't spend money in our hospital. So I walked out of that meeting just blown away that there was never even a thought to increase services at Wyndham Hospital and that the only thought was to decrease services at Wyndham Hospital. We decided it was time to bring the community in. 
and that the five of us as activists could not be the only ones who knew that this was happening. That we had to tell, as I said earlier, our neighbors, our taxpayers, our political representatives. I didn't even know if they knew that it was happening in their own backyard. That's when we decided um, to host the educational forum. So it was not a debate environment, it was an educational environment for the community. Leah, you're an amazing activist. Thank you for joining us today and for answering our members' questions. We appreciate your voice and your advocacy for the community and really just as that health equity champion for us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I hope that we are successful in this venture because it's important. It's important to keep our health care at home. Absolutely. That's a wrap for this latest edition of AFT in Action. Additional episodes are available at our Podbean page and social media channels, all of which can be found at aftct.org. Like what you heard? Then share with fellow members and encourage they give it a listen too, and help build the power of the UNI in union. On the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's On The Job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. My name's Francis Leach. My name's Sally Rugg. Now, this week's podcast is on Sunday. Yesterday it will be on the 28th of August. It's Equal Pay Day, which is a day that focuses on the fact that, let's face it, we still don't have equal pay when it comes to men and women. Christine Zwicka is a brilliant journalist, and she's been writing a series of articles this year for the Saturday paper on that very issue. Christina, welcome to On The Job. Thanks for having me. You've been writing a lot in the last couple of months or throughout your career on these issues around gender pay and the enormous gap and disparity between uh, women's work and what they're paid for and the environments they work in. But you have written that, I mean, researchers found that when women enter in greater numbers in a particular sector, pay declines for the same job that men used to do. So is it just an assumption that women will work for less? So what we know here in Australia is that the undervaluing of women's work, the poor pay and the poor conditions that we attach to industries that are dominated by women accounts for about one-fifth of the gender pay gap. Research tells us that if a industry used to be dominated by men and then becomes dominated by women or vice versa, pay goes down or pay goes up. So you can look at kind of computer programmers, for example, that used to be considered a sort of clerical female job in hidden figures. You can see that at NASA. But then it became, IT became a sort of blokey profession. And then suddenly (laughs) there were lots of men making lots of money in that profession. We haven't seen that in the caring professions. So the pay and the conditions have remained very low. So what the health services union will argue, what they're effectively doing is bringing something that's called a work value case to the Fair Work Commission. And they will argue that this work is undervalued precisely because it's female dominated. They will also argue that the skills required to do the work have changed over time. And that hasn't been reflected in the wages. And they will be seeking what's called an equal remuneration order for a 25% pay rise. So has COVID changed 
the dynamic here. Has COVID and the experience of women in these caring roles and in these frontline jobs brought a sharper focus to just how vital that work is? And will that be enough to change things? Absolutely. And not just here, but around the world. The undervaluing of women's work is not a phenomenon unique to Australia. It's not a phenomenon unique to the caring professions of Australia. It happens everywhere. The pandemic has really highlighted what I write about, a really interesting dichotomy. So the women who work in these care professions were really thrust onto the front line. And in other countries around the world, some of them paid with their lives because they contracted COVID at work and really showed not only how hard this work is, but how risky this work can be in this current pandemic. And we had lots of campaigns like claps for carers, but that really galvanized workforce to say those claps and that appreciation is all very well and good. And it's very nice that you are at long last acknowledging the value of the work that we do in this new context. But quote Jerry Maguire, show me the money. And I think where you have a workforce that maybe as Josie and Virginia described to me, it was a, they were a little bit quiet. They didn't want to walk out on the people that they were caring for to take industrial action. They're really fed up now. And this has just lit a fire, I think, in this sector and in other female-dominated sectors. And one of the things that's happened internationally during the pandemic that I found really interesting, and I, as a longtime observer of this issue, I was actually quite delighted about, was that these essential AF t-shirts, so essential as fuck, were a bit of a play on that kind of feminist AF slogan that many feminists will wear, and lots of essential AF merchandise started to sell like hotcakes on Etsy. And women in these professions started to wear these. And I thought, oh my God, this is so fantastic, because at long last, this somewhat beige, but vitally important feminist issue of the undervaluing of women's work, as I said, it accounts for about a fifth of the gender pay gap here in Australia. Many people don't realize that. They don't make that connection. But it finally has this kind of T-shirt-worthy slogan. It has this T-shirt-worthy rallying cry that's galvanizing this workforce and their union, which has seen a 20% increase in membership since they took this case and they launched this campaign, to fight their own corner and to raise this issue and to say, thanks for the claps, but we actually want our work to be properly recognised and rewarded with pay. Your pay gap's still at 13.4%. Uh, there's a lot of work to be done. Thank you for being with us, Christina. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Christine Zwicker there, journalist and author, talking to us about the issues around the gender pay gap and women in the workforce. Read her stuff in the Saturday paper and also the links are in our show notes as well if you want to catch a couple of her articles. It's on the job. Welcome back, Great Northwest listener. Summer's been a blast, but it's now time to get back to work bringing you content designed to make you stronger, smarter, and more connected to your craft and your union. Season 3 officially starts on Monday, September 6th. We'll carry on with twice-monthly releases until early December. So be sure to like, subscribe, or follow the show so you won't miss an episode. 
And oh yeah, make sure you share it too. Your endorsement really does go a long way in helping to grow the show. Welcome to Grit Northwest. Thank you, Joe, for having me on the show. Hey, Dale, thanks for taking your time to tell us all about what shook out yesterday at Splat Action Paintball Park in Malala. Sounds like uh, you had a pretty good time. I was hoping you could tell the listeners what uh, what went down. Absolutely. be my pleasure. Yesterday, it all came about. We had, I would say, approximately between 70 and 80 veterans, carpenters, and families that showed up. And we had Buster's Barbecue, we had some recruiters there, we had taco trucks, and uh, we all went out and bunkers and towns and all kinds of stuff that was going on. So it was an absolute blast. Scott Schaefer, one of our reps, was out there. We had three reps, uh, recruiters to help uh, organize the event, and it just turned out so well. The amazing feedback I got from the carpenters out there was, I'm glad you guys did this. Uh, we should do this more often, and they really thanked us for putting this together. Everybody got shirts. We had about $1,000 in raffle items, and one of our carpenters, uh, Jason Weisenberg, actually got a really smoking deal over at Camp's Lumber Lumberyard, and uh, all the uh, raffle items it cost. Oh, man, that's Camp's uh, Lumberyard out in Gresham, I imagine. Yes, it is. And we got uh, two sets of Occidental leather bags. Uh, we had uh, stiletto hammers. We had Stabila levels that we gave out and, and just a plethora of other little tools. So we had about 31 raffle items. And then Jason also made, it was uh, basically a flag uh, safe uh, that oh. opens up with a little card reader uh, that he gave off and raffled off his own. He built that actually right before he came to the event and is excited to give that away. Wow, sounds like a great event, Dale. And did you get your yourself out there on the paintball battle? I did. And it was funny because one of the reps out there basically told all the young kids that were under 18 that he put a bounty on my head. So any kid that was able to shoot me was going to get $30. No way. You're a marked man. So how many <laughs> how many paintballs did you take? Fortunately, nobody, nobody got me. Nobody. There's that Marine training right there, huh? <laughs> Absolutely. You get the best training of the world. You get to take it out there on the battlefield. So it's fun. Well, good for you. I'm sorry I actually wasn't able to attend that one. I was hoping to do a live a broadcast from the Splat Action Paintball Park, but uh, it didn't was not in the cards this year, but next time around, for sure, I'm going to try to make it out there. So, again, Dale, I appreciate you taking your time to be on the show. I just wanted to do a wrap-up and let everyone know that uh, the event went down. It sounded like it was fun for all, and sounds like some pretty cool prizes were won as well. Absolutely. Thank you, Joe, for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Dale. See you next time. You're listening to WLPN 105.5 FM Chicago, and you're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only English-language labor news and current affairs radio program, news for working people by working people. I'm your host, Jerry Midlacero, and this is the Sunday, August 22nd, 2021 edition of Labor Express. The bulk of the program will be an interview with Avery Barnard, a former Amazon employee who has launched his own podcast about his experience and about the Amazon phenomenon more broadly. Avery was also in close contact with many of the warehouse workers at Amazon's fulfillment centers and learned from them the experiences of other workers in the Amazon system. His podcast discusses not only his own experience, but the experience of other Amazon workers, and he has researched the effect Amazon is having on society as a whole, which is one of the major topics of his podcast. 
I asked Avery why he decided to launch a podcast that interrogates the Amazon phenomenon more broadly. As simple as it is, one of my favorite novels of all time is The Jungle. I got to thinking when I was reading that again as an adult, man, (laughs) these problems that they're describing sure do sound a lot like the same problems we're having at Amazon. And I've always really respected journalism and independent journalists. And I guess I just decided to take a stab at playing pretend at that. And there's so much room for improvement over the entire United States for labor reform. Like it has to start happening. I suggested to Avery that he shared my view that Amazon as the nation's second largest employer and as a trend center for the economy was potentially shaping the future of work in the 21st century. I argued that the only way the conditions he describes at Amazon and for workers in our economy in general would improve is through organizing. Absolutely. God bless the Teamsters, but that's the reason they just took this historic vote to start fighting. Amazon's starting to bite into their territory. They're starting to really gut places like UPS. And FedEx has changed drastically since Amazon has started doing this delivery service. And they absolutely take the legs out of the competition because they just do it with <laughs> so cheaply, so terribly. But they do it so fast, and they just have a vast amount of people working for them. They could just throw people into this meat grinder until they start to take away value from other companies. In my interview with Avery, I mentioned the idea that Amazon is a system of distributing goods is not inherently evil, and is certainly not going away. The both of us are Amazon customers ourselves and recognize the tremendous societal value that Amazon's distribution network provides. This service doesn't need to not exist. It needs to be humane and it needs to put the priorities of people ahead of the priorities of Amazon. There's this whole concept of the flywheel that a lot of big business guys talk about. Jeff Bezos has really subscribed to the idea where every single thing you do has to push that flywheel a little bit faster, just a little bit faster. And that perpetual motion will keep the machine up. And when no one talks about when they're talking about this flywheel concept is the amount of people you really burn through to make that happen. Like you have to throw physical bodies at that kind of thing to make it work. And they don't all come back the same. Some of them don't come back at all. So I don't know how much more we can take as a good society before it just breaks. Amazon affects everybody, even if you don't work there. Like you're saying with the whole tax breaks and stuff they get earlier and the whole like HQ2, I'm paying for that second headquarters out of my pocket because it's in Virginia. Like my money is going directly to Amazon. Personally, I would like to see that money invested into actual, the actual communities and things like public transit and better healthcare because I think that would improve Virginia a lot more than HQ2, but it's just, it doesn't end. 
Thank you to Avery Bernard for taking out time from his busy schedule for that interview. That's all the time we have for tonight's program. Labor Express, a nonprofit 501c3 member of IBEW 1220. Tune in every Sunday at 8 p.m. or Monday at 11 a.m. on 105.5 FM or lumpenradio.com for more Labor Express. Welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum, a weekly show of news, information, and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City. Ed Asner was born in Kansas City in 1929. He's 83 and has no plans to retire. As a TV actor, he won more Emmys than any other. He gained fame playing Lou Grant on the Mary Tyler Moore Show, whose theme you just heard in the 1970s, and then transformed the character into, the, uh, into a drama, The Lou Grant Show. He's been in over 200 films and TV series, including dramas, comedies, documentaries, and cartoons, and has been notoriously outspoken on issues of labor, human rights, and U.S. foreign policy for decades. We invited him for an extended interview, and he graciously accepted. We bring you the interview on this week's show. Was it in the 70s that you got involved in the Screen Actors Guild? I can remember in 72, I made an approach for a group of actors I was identified with, and I tried my appeal to open the candidacy posts open them more to the membership rather than create a nominated slate of members, of officers. And it didn't change anything until I came along and became president. That was in 72. Now, when you were president of the union, you were still doing Lou Grant, and it was canceled in 1982. So was it your union activism or what that got the show canceled? No, it was my involvement in Salvador. Oh, really? And what's behind that? Was there pressure put on the network? Do you know? Certainly. One of our sponsors was Kimberly Clark, who had three factories in El Salvador. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's amazing. Vidal said soon, uh, whatever program they had on, they canceled. And the candy company, Cadbury, they're the ones who canceled advertising on our show because of what I was saying about Salvador. In plus, they perverted it, and I became a communist because of the perversion. Mm-hmm. So that uh, whatever came out of my mouth was uh, communistic. You also weren't much of a fan of Ronald Reagan, right? What did you think of him as president of the Screen Actors Guild? He was well-liked. I don't know that he made any... Some people accuse him of selling out the guild because actors who were in movies before 60... Got no residuals or reruns when they were replayed on TV. Hmm. And that was a sizable number. Well, he was also accused of naming names to... But he did that privately. Oh. 
not yeah. as president. He condemned the House on American Activities Committee, but then he and his wife, who was a liberal, Jane Wyman at the time, gave gave names of suspected communists in their minds to the Justice Department. We haven't uh, we haven't really dug into labor. The no. fact that labor is in to? such horrible straits today that my I'm I'm no longer active in my union. So what's wrong with unions, or why are unions Nothing in such wrong decline? With unions. They're the greatest thing as uh, sliced bread. They are, are the best equipment in the world. To, uh, my first out-of-town meeting, I, I went to, to, to Denver and attended a union meeting there, the branch of SAG there. And Bud Wolf, the executive secretary of AFTRA, was in attendance at that same meeting. And I listened as he spoke, and he said, there has not been any act or social progress achieved in this country that labor did not either sponsor or support it wholeheartedly. And when I heard that, I thought, what else do you need to hear that? The point is that with labor, with unionized labor, a a level of decency and fairness can be achieved in establishing wages and working conditions. And when those levels are established, the non-union man who then gets a job because they don't want to go union automatically benefits from whatever the laboring man fought and struck for to achieve a bottom line of reward of fairness, of acceptance. The more labor can be defeated, the more you can advance on the other fronts. Thank you. My pleasure. Tune in every Thursday evening to the Heartland Labor Forum at 6 o'clock or to our Friday morning rebroadcast at 5 o'clock right here on 90.1 FM KKFI. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Today's episode takes us behind the scenes of director Tom McCarthy's new drama, Stillwater. Mr. McCarthy's film tells the story of Bill, an unemployed oil rig roughneck who flies to Marseille to visit his estranged daughter, Allison, who is imprisoned for a murder she claims she did not commit. Eager to regain her trust, Bill embarks on a mission to exonerate Allison despite language barriers, cultural differences, and a complicated legal system. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. McCarthy spoke with fellow director Scott Cooper about filming Stillwater. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Good evening. Thank you. Hey guys. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming out tonight. I said to Tom, I said, wow, I, I, I'll be surprised if anyone's here. And what a great turnout. Thank you guys for coming out. It's such a beautiful and, and powerful and, and, and very human film. The intimacy really comes through in, in the picture. Why Marseille as opposed, which I really appreciate it, just if nothing more than you don't see it often and my love for French connection. Yep. But why Marseille and not Paris? 
just felt like a better canvas, right? It's just a sloppier, messier, really working class town. It's a port city, which I think is sort of interesting for the dynamic of Bill arriving to this port city. It's a city that has layers of immigrants that really deals with class and race in a way much different than than Paris does. And I just thought, you know, visually, I went and started visiting that 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 city early 10 years ago, 11 years ago, and I just fell in love with what it represented. And um, you know, finally, I was reading a lot of Mediterranean noir then uh, set in Barcelona and Italy. And, and, and there's a series, this Izzo novel, series of novels set in Marseille. And it just really captured the spirit of, I think, one, one element of this story that I thought was exciting and right. Was it helpful for you to be outside of the U.S. to kind of comment on, on the way in which you did? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 2016, we were all in such a storm here, right? It was hard to get, you know, thing. And the, the French writers were just great. We would get on the call every day and they just went like, what is going on there? What is happening? How do we talk about it? And I think they were helping me process what was happening here, right? And, and as first as a writer and then as a storyteller and how we would think about it. And at that same time, 2016, I really started going to Oklahoma for the first time again and again and again, driving around, meeting roughnecks, setting up interviews with them, taping them. I was spending a lot of time there and doing a deep dive into that really specific culture, not just of Oklahoma, but of roughnecks. And that was incredibly enlightening on a lot of levels as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, and as an American trying to, trying to understand what was happening to our country at that point. It was incredibly, incredibly fundamental to the work. Talk about your relationship with actors and how you direct them, do you direct them? Because there are other actors that I know who are directors that don't really give much direction. I mean, I think just because I love that work, I love that communication, I love finding individual language for each actor, which in this case, you know, you've got Matt, Abby, Kemi, and Lilu, just the four of them, they just, you know, Lilu, who plays Maya, had never been on a movie set, never acted a day in her life, and didn't even speak English, you know, only French. So it was like finding my language and rhythm with her. Matt spoke no French and they had to have all their scenes together. And, you know, I think with each person it was different, you know, uh, but I love finding that sort of individual language and then a common language for all the actors to speak. Cause in my mind, that's sort of building a company and then how that filters down to every single actor in the show and in the film, you know, right up to the, uh, day players who just kind of come in and we used a lot of local casting in this because Marseille they were excellent what's yeah and they were just great faces and great people and so game and so wetty and um you know every one of them uh because you know in Marseille the dialect's different so it wouldn't matter as much to this audience but if you're from Paris and if there's French people in here you know we needed that sound I needed them to sound like they were from that region well, you do it beautifully. Congratulations, because I think the film is really, really outstanding. And thank you all for sitting through Thank this. you, man. Thank you guys for staying so late and coming out on Sunday night. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally. And that'll be it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, a show where we bring you the highlights from the Labor Radio Podcast Network's now over 130 shows. Once again, if you're interested in more labor-related podcasts, 
check out our website and new member page at laborradionetwork.org or use the hashtag laborradiopod on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at laborradionet. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon, Chris Bangert-Drowns, and myself. It was produced by Chris Garlock and promoted on social media by the one and only Harold Phillips. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Mel Smith, and have a happy, healthy Labor Day weekend.